would ask you as we prepare to open God's Word again together this morning that you would, before we do so, consider with your heart uh, that this is God's Word. It's God's Word. It's true that the Lord was pleased to use men to write down what we have here, but they wrote just exactly what God wanted them to write. Paul told Timothy that all of the Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or more literally, all of the Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's as if God just breathed into the hearts of these men that recorded His Word exactly what He would have them to say. So this is the Word of God. It is to be held in reverence. It's to be respected. Uh, we're not to mock the Word of God. We're not to uh, not take seriously God's Word because it is just that. So let's keep that in mind, if we can, this morning, not only as we read God's Word, but as we hear uh, what the Lord would have us to understand from it this morning. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to turn to Psalm 23. Uh, this is probably a very unfamiliar psalm. No, this is probably the most familiar psalm in the book of Psalms. Uh, I probably could call upon several of you here this morning, and without even looking at your Bible, you could quote, if not all of it, at least a good portion of it. Uh, it is a very familiar portion of God's Word, but it is not only instructive, it is a source of great comfort and encouragement as well. So look with me now in Psalm 23. I want to read the entire psalm, but then for my text this morning, I'm going to really narrow down the 23rd Psalm to the first phrase of verse 1. So we'll come back to that after I read it all. Psalm 23, verse 1 through verse 6. The Lord... The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. May I pause just a minute right there? And when we read that David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He was not saying, There's not going to be anything that I want or that I am wanting for or wish I had or whatever. It's not our wants that the psalmist is talking about here. It's our needs. Our needs. Now, all of us are guilty of presenting to the Lord our wants, probably far more often than we are thanking Him for the provision of our needs. But uh, let's realize here that the, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he says, I shall not need anything more. I don't need anything more. God gives us everything we need when he gives us himself, doesn't he? What more could we ask for? What more? Well, let's go on. He makes me, he makes me lie down in green pastures. God brings me, my shepherd brings me to that place where I receive all that I need to sustain me. All that I need to sustain me. He leads me beside still waters or waters of rest. 
where there is peace and there is quiet. Uh, he leads me beside these still waters. He restores my soul. He literally gives me life. That's what he does. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, ways that glorify him. Because you see, he says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I benefit from it. Therefore, I should rejoice in it and be thankful for it. But what God is doing here in our lives when he leads us in paths of righteousness is he's calling attention to who he is and what he's done and what he's doing for us. And he alone could get the glory for it. All right? For though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Precious, precious is this portion of God's word to us. The Lord is my shepherd. That is my text this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. Bow with me in prayer, would you? Our Father, we do thank you. We thank you with all of our heart, Lord, that you are our shepherd. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this portion of your word that makes known unto us these, these things that our shepherd provides for us. Lord, we're so grateful. Just bless the time we spend now, Lord. Make it, make it real to us. Make it an encouragement to us. Make it instructive to us. And may we profit and benefit from it, Lord. And all of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd. I've entitled the message this morning, Time for Testing. Time for Testing. You know, uh, when you're in school and the time for testing comes around, you have a tendency to be anxious and apprehensive. Uh, why is that? It's because you know when you're tested, you either end up with a negative result or a positive result. And if you have the positive result, oh, then you're so thankful. <laughs> you're so thankful. And you realize, I shouldn't have been apprehensive at all about these things. I shouldn't have been anxious. I shouldn't have been worried because I got a good grade. I, I was successful. But if, on the other hand, you come up short, I'm sure. But shouldn't you still be thankful? Because if you didn't come up short, if you never came up short, you'd never see that you had a need for something you didn't know and understand. Uh, and so time for testing. Time for testing is, is so important. Uh, the Apostle Paul 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You may want to turn there and look at this with me. Uh, let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the last chapter of Paul's second epistle to the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul, as he approaches the conclusion of this second letter that he is writing to the church at Corinth, and I say this second letter, there is indication earlier on in his writing to the church, the church at Corinth that he had written a, a letter previous to either one of these to them that was lost somewhere. Evidently, God did not intend for it to be as a part of the canon or a part of the scripture. But uh, we have two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth was a, a city that was infested. I mean, it was infested by that. I mean, it was infested with the plague of sin. It was a sinful place. Ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, was rampant in Corinth. And, and Paul was writing his letters to them, you know, to seek to not only point out to them the things that were going on there, because, but, but to correct to correct some of these things, to put an end to some of these things. And uh, many of these people were true believers. Many of them were merely professing believers, professing Christians. And so as Paul approaches the very conclusion of his second letter to them in chapter 13 and in verse 5, let's look at what he says. To these folks he said, examine yourselves or test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now the King James, I believe, says something like this. Examine yourselves and see whether you be in the faith. Uh, examine yourselves uh, do not, don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates or except you be hypocrites? Uh, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Well, this morning, uh, it's time for testing. It's time for testing. Uh, this past week, uh, early on Wednesday morning, in my scripture reading. Uh, and I was reading uh, in the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. And I was reading Isaiah chapter 53, chapter 54, and chapter 55. Those three chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah. And we had our Bible study that Wednesday afternoon down at the place where Carolyn lives. And by the way, I might add, please continue to pray with us down there as we meet on Wednesday evenings. The Lord is blessing. The Lord is dealing with some people. And it's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me, and I'm thankful for it. But when I read that portion of Scripture Wednesday morning, I, I, I told the folks when, when we met together that afternoon down there that I was somewhat overwhelmed and I mean that literally, I was somewhat overwhelmed uh, with this constraining awareness 
that the Lord would have me ask them a very, very important question when we met in the afternoon there for the Bible study. And uh, the question that the Lord impressed upon me heart, my heart to ask these folks was this. Uh, because we've been studying in, in, in John chapter 10. We've been going through the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, which we just read earlier as we began our time together. And it's talking about the shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep. Talking about the Lord saying, I am the good shepherd. And we referred, even Wednesday afternoon, we talked about uh, the psalmist and the psalm that he wrote that we read this morning, of which I'm drawing my text, the Lord is my shepherd. And the question that God burdened my heart to ask those folks down there is, is this one of whom we're studying here in John chapter 10? Is he uh, your shepherd? Is he your shepherd? Uh, now, this morning, uh, we're going to kind of do somewhat of the same thing as we've met here as we did Wednesday afternoon in the Bible study down there. But the Lord has uh, encouraged me to take just a slightly different approach this morning than what we did down there. Rather than me asking you the question, uh, because of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, telling these folks, you examine yourself. You test yourself. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to present the question that will lead to my presenting some other questions. And when I present the question, I want to encourage you, as the Apostle Paul was exhorting the folks at Corinth, you ask yourself these questions, if you would. You test yourself. You examine yourself. Uh, as we look to God's Word together this morning. Is this one that we're talking about here? Ask yourself this question. Is this one, the one the psalmist mentioned when he said, the Lord is my shepherd? Or this one that Jesus was talking about as he spoke to these folks as it's recorded for us in John chapter 10? Uh, ask yourself that question, would you please? Examine yourself by asking yourself, is this one of whom we're reading here, is he my shepherd? Is he? Paul says it's important that you do so because when you've been tested, when you test yourself, when you examine yourself, you're going to find that you either answered this in the positive to the praise and the glory of God or you're going to find that you answer this question perhaps in the negative. Perhaps in the negative. Which means if, if nothing is done about where you find yourself not having this one to be your shepherd, you are looking at an eternity alienated from him and separated from him because he's not your shepherd. He's not your shepherd. And so I would encourage you, please, ask yourself this question. Now, 
in asking yourself this question, there are some other questions that arise that perhaps are helpful to us in seeking not only the answer to that question, but what needs to be done about it, if especially we find ourselves answering to the negative. No, he's not my shepherd. Uh, and so let's go on and, and, and you ask yourself some of these other questions that I want to present to you, if you would, this morning. Uh, secondly, uh, has, he, has he given to me, if you ask yourself this question, has he given to me uh, life when I was dead in my trespasses and in my sins? Let's turn back to John chapter 10 for just a moment. Can we do that? Let's have our Bibles open to John chapter 10 where Jesus is talking about being the shepherd of his sheep. Does he mention here that the shepherd gives life? That there's life as a gift from him? Indeed he does. Look with me in verse 10. Verse 10 of John chapter 10. Where he, goes, he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's, that's what the thief comes to do. But what does he say about himself? I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. There's a time when we all enter into this world when we don't have life. Oh, we're alive physically. <laughs> we're alive physically. But life Real life is far, far more than the physical thing in it, material thing. It's, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. Uh, it's, it's something that's found only in the Lord himself. And in those whom he's pleased to give life to. Remember the Apostle Paul in, Ephes- in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that begins that second uh, chapter in his letter to the church at Ephesus like this and you did he quicken when you were dead in your trespasses and sin you he did quicken you he made alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sin and then he goes on to say in the next few verses there was a time when we weren't alive and because we weren't alive unto God this is the way we lived our lives oh my <laughs> Uh, sometime turn there. Turn there, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, if you're not familiar with it. And listen to what Paul reminded these folks. They were before the Spirit of God quickened them and gave them life. Oh, but then he says a little few verses after that, he says, But God, but God who is rich in His mercy, wherewith He loved us, hath quickened us or made us alive together with Christ. And it's important that we understand that being made alive together has to be with Christ. Can't be apart from Christ. Because if you recall, John began his gospel account by saying in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was in the beginning with God. Without without Him was not anything made that was made. Uh, In Him was life. And the life was the light of it. Life is in Christ. It's not found anywhere else except when one is joined to Christ. Quickened, made alive together with Christ. So ask yourself this question. 
Ask yourself, has this one that we're reading about here in John chapter 10, has he given me life? Am I really alive unto God? Uh, important that we do that. Secondly, ask yourself this question if you would. Has he saved me? Has he saved me from my sin? Remember the Lord Jesus here in the ninth verse of John chapter 10. says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the door. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And at least four times in this 10th chapter of the Gospel according to John, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. What does he mean by that? I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, it means he died. He died for the sheep. The Apostle Paul, writing again to the church at Corinth, in his, the, the 15th chapter of his first letter to them, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that chapter begins like this. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you of, of first importance what I, all, I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, but that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Christ died for us. Christ died to pay the price for our sin. That's what it means when he says, I laid down my life for the sheep. I laid down my life for the sheep. Uh, let's go on with the test. Have I heard his voice? Have I heard his voice and followed him? Verse 4, Jesus said, when the shepherd has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 27, we didn't read that far this morning, but here it is. Here it is, verse 27. My sheep, my sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know them, and they follow me. Perhaps you recall when the first disciples of Jesus uh, came to him, or he came to them. Uh, Peter and his brother James were fishermen, weren't they? James and his brother John were fishermen. That's what they did for a living. But when Jesus came along and, and they were encountered, uh, they encountered Jesus, Jesus said to them what? Follow me. Follow me. Peter and James, follow me. Just like Jesus said. Andrew, Peter and Andrew, and James and John were fishermen as well. And they, when Jesus said, follow me, left their fishing and followed him. Remember Luke? Luke was a tax collector, wasn't he? He was a Jew. 
He was a Jewish tax collector. The tax collectors were mostly all, not, not Luke, but Matthew, I'm sorry. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector. And the Jews were a people who hated Rome and the, uh, the authority that Rome had over them. And so for a Jew like Matthew to hire out to the Romans to collect taxes for them was a terrible thing. And the Jews hated the tax collectors. But when Jesus spoke to Matthew, the tax collector, he said, follow me. And Matthew immediately left a very lucrative profession, by the way, left it and followed Jesus. Because the voice of Jesus is an irresistible voice when he's pleased to speak to the heart of one that he would have follow him. An irresistible voice. Uh, oh, but you say, uh, that's contrary to my free will. Well, it may be. But the fact of the matter is, uh, though our will be in opposition to him, and God doesn't infringe upon our will, if you will, he just makes us willing in the day of his power. He makes us willing. And we hear his voice. And we follow him. Have I heard his voice and followed him? Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's essential that we follow him, that we hear his voice, and that we follow him. Have I done that? Have I done that? Is he keeping me? Is he keeping me? eternally secure this shepherd is this shepherd keeping me eternally secure eternally safe verse 28 of John chapter 10 Jesus said I give them eternal life now we could stop right there and that ought to settle the question should that should answer it right there what kind of life is eternal life just exactly that it's eternal life it's a life that always has been and always will be. Oh, but how can I have a, li a life that always has been? Because the life that he gives is his own life. It is his own life. And when we are united to Christ, when we are joined to Christ, the life we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Is he keeping me secure? Jesus said, I, in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This life will never end. They will never perish. And no one will be able to pluck them or snatch them out of my hand. And if that's not enough, he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Oh, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy 
in Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, the first, 12th verse, I believe it is, where he said, and I, I'll quote it to you the way I learned it in the King James. He said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I'm persuaded that he is able. I believe the ESV says, I'm convinced that what I've committed to him, he's able to keep. Is he keeping me? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Is he keeping me? Am I kept secure? Do I have eternal life? One that will never perish. Will never perish. And so can you truly and with certainty say with David, the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say with some of these sheep mentioned in John chapter 10, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, let me, if I can, explain why I'm asking you to ask yourselves these questions, if I can. Wednesday morning as I was reading these passages from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapters 53 through chapter 55. It brought to my mind so clearly my own experience, my own experience in life. Uh, I look around here to those of you who are here today and other than Carolyn because she was there at the Bible study Wednesday, and Donna. I don't believe I've ever shared my testimony with any of the rest of you. And so, can I? Can I do that this morning? Can I share my testimony, my own personal testimony? The thing that came to my mind when I read these passages from the prophecy of Isaiah. I want to share my testimony with you, if I could. I grew up in church. Never remember a time. Cannot remember a time uh, as far back as my memory will let me go today. I can't remember a time when I wasn't in church, our family in church. Every Sunday morning, we were there for Sunday school, and for the, the preaching service. Every Sunday evening, we were there for the Bible study that was earlier than the preaching hour on Sunday evening, but we were there for both. Every Wednesday evening, the church had prayer meeting, and we were there. My folks were faithful in attendance at church, and they made sure that my brother and I went with them. I grew up in church. And so because of that, every summer, uh, the church had vacation Bible school. I never missed one. I never missed one when I was a child. Always at vacation Bible school. And I don't know if it was this way with you, if you went to Bible school as a kid or not in the summer. But at the close of the day, before we went our separate ways and went home, uh, the pastor of the church would always... Uh, present a message to us, a sermonette at least, if you would, 
uh, and this one particular day at the close of the Bible school, the pastor that we had, he presented to us a very emotional appeal, uh, encouraging us to come and give our life to Christ. Uh, I can remember not a whole lot of what he said at this particular time with the exception of I do know that he talked about all you got to do is just give your heart to Jesus. All you got to do is just invite Jesus into your heart. Isn't that amazing? For those of us who can stop and consider for just a few moments today what the Lord has revealed to us about what our heart is like, And to be told by a preacher that you need to invite Jesus into such a filthy, corrupt heart as what we have. I remember listening to a preacher once and saying, your heart is not good for anything but to be pitched into the garbage heap in the trash. God doesn't want your filthy heart. God wants nothing to do with your sinful heart. That's why he gives us a new heart. A heart that is right in his eyes. But on this particular day, this was the very emotional appeal that the pastor gave. Uh, He was well-meaning. He was well-meaning. I'm convinced of that. But I was sitting there among my peers and my friends. And as he encouraged us to come forward there, you know, at the end of the uh, service, as an invitation was given, uh, a group of my friends went forward. And I thought, oh my. And it was very emotional. I was shedding tears just like they were. And I didn't want to be left out. And so I went down there with them to the front of the church. And the pastor, he prayed with each of us, and he prayed with me. And he just said, just, just say this prayer after me. You know, just to tell Jesus you want him to come into your heart and, and save you from your sin. Well, you know, I was more than happy to do that. And went on my way, rejoicing. A few weeks later, I went down to the creek on a Sunday afternoon, and I was baptized. And I became a member of the church as a result. And for several years, I lived with a false hope in my heart that all was well between me and the Lord. And then God began to himself confront me with the truth, with the truth. And God took me to portions of his word, like what we read in the sixth chapter of Genesis in the fifth verse, where the scripture tells us that before the flood, before God was determined to destroy every living thing upon the face of the earth, with the exception of Noah and his family, whom he had instructed to build an ark to take his family into, and and the animals that he wanted him to take there for their preservation as well. And God spoke to my heart what he saw 
when he looked down upon mankind. Perhaps some of you remember what he said. God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually before him. And I can remember thinking, well, what an ungodly group of people they must have been. How ungodly they must have been. Surely, surely God would have made a place. Had I been there, surely God would have made a place for me in the ark as well. And then the Lord spoke to me what Jeremiah the prophet said. Recorded in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah in verse 9. He said, the heart is deceitful. And above all things, desperately wicked. And then God led me to Romans, the book of Romans, Paul's letter, chapter 3. Very familiar verse to most of us here. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, verse 23, the wages for being the sinner that I would be because I'm a part of that all. The wages have to be paid for my sin is death. Eternal separation from God. And I realized that when God looked down upon the face of the earth so many years ago before the earth was destroyed by the flood and only Noah and his family were preserved because they found grace in the eyes of the Lord, when God looked down upon that mass of sinful humanity, he saw me. He saw me. Just like he saw everybody else. Every imagination of the thoughts of my heart, nothing but iniquitous and sinful, ungodliness and unrighteousness, that reigned in my heart. And when Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked, he was talking about my heart. Talking about me. What I was before him. And just like everybody else, when I came into this world, I was a sinner. Deserving of death. Deserving of death, eternal separation from God in a hell prepared for the devil and his angels. Hmm. Aye. What an impression that made upon my heart when God confronted me with the truth. But thank God. Thank God that because he did. Because he did, I can now say with certainty and assurance with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. He laid down his life for me. He gave me life. He spoke to me and I heard his voice. And I followed him. And now I have the assurance that I am eternally secure and safe because Christ paid the price for my sin. Yes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me that I might be made 
the righteousness of God in him. And I told the folks Wednesday afternoon that I have learned since that day when God saved me. I have learned in 50 plus years of preaching God's word. Many of those years pastoring local flocks of God's sheep, the sheep of his pasture, that my experience that I had as a nine-year-old and in those years following was not mine alone. It was not mine alone. Through the years counseling with folks and hearing their story, I realized that many of them Many of them were misled by well-meaning shepherds, well-meaning pastors and preachers, not intentionally misleading, not intentionally encouraging folks to do something that was not really right in God's eyes. And so I want you, as we wrap this up, uh, this morning, if, we, if you would, I want you to look at something with me. If this morning you have taken the test, and if you've examined yourself, and if you've asked yourself these questions that I presented to you, I want you to look at something with me. I want you to turn with me back to the prophecy of Isaiah. This portion of God's word that God used to so overwhelm my my heart and my my soul with the need to present those questions to the folks at the Bible study and the same overwhelming impression that God impressed upon me to share this as well with you folks here this morning. So I want you to look with me at the passage the Lord used that spoke to me of my own experience, my own personal experience. Look with me, first of all, in Isaiah 54. Three chapters that I read that morning from the prophecy of Isaiah. And what gripped my heart uh, so heavily was found here in the, the middle chapter, chapter 54. Now, we'll not take time to look at all of this, but let me just read to you verses 4 and 5 if I can where God spoke to my heart, just as he was speaking to these folks back then. And listen to what God said to me that he had said to them so many years before. Fear not. Fear not. There's no reason for you to fear what lies ahead. Fear not. For you will not be ashamed. And that word is better translated, put to shame. You will not be put to shame. Be not confounded or better, humiliated. Don't be put to shame. Don't be fearful of being put to shame or of being uh, humiliated. For you will not be disgraced. God spoke that to my heart. Now God is speaking here of a time when one day every man, woman, boy, and girl will have to stand before the judge of the whole earth, the holy God. 
what will be the outcome for, of that day in your life. Will you be put to shame? Will you be humiliated? Uh, quite possible that you might be. If you were like me, misled, perhaps deceived, not intentionally, but deceived, and led to, to have a false hope about your relationship to God, when you stand before Him, you may very well be like those that Jesus was talking to in the seventh chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. When he said, there are many who will come unto me in the day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we, didn't we heal the sick? Did we do all of this in your name? And they will hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Unlike what the shepherd says of his sheep, I know them. I know them. And therefore they know me. Because you see, knowing him, knowing him, so many today talk about knowing the Lord. But knowing him is a direct result of his, first of all, knowing us. Just like loving him. John writes in 1 John, we love Him because He first loved us. We know Him, but only if He first of all knew us. An intimate relationship, an intimate knowledge, a, a knowledge that is based upon love, eternal love, everlasting love. That's what it means that He knows us. Hmm. Fear not. For you will not be put to shame. Be not humiliated. For you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. There will come a day when all your sin you can forget because God has forgotten it as well. Put it behind his back. Remembers it no more. Removed it as far as the east is from the west. Buried it in the deepest sea. And so you don't need to remember the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Why? Because your maker, your creator, your creator is your husband. Is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth is he called. What more could any sinner ask for than to have God make this promise to it? This glorious promise that we find here in Isaiah 54 is found earlier in Isaiah chapter 45. You want to turn there with me just a moment? Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 17. Here God says, but Israel, Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. Here again, you shall not be put to shame or confounded or humiliated to all of eternity. What a glorious promise that is. 
Who's he speaking to? More says Israel here, doesn't it? Israel. Now Israel is not all Israel. Paul will tell us that in Romans chapter nine. But the but the Jews, because they were descendants of Abraham, they felt they were Israel. But the nation Israel is not the Israel that God is talking about here. Paul says all Israel is not Israel. It's the remnant. It's those that God said is lovable before the foundation of the world. It's the spiritual seed of Abraham, not the physical seed of Abraham. It's those who, like Abraham, believe in God and trust God and take Him at His word. It's those that are the Israel of God. Now, the Israel of God are God's people. They are the ones that God set His love upon before the foundation of the world. They are the called out ones. They're the separated ones. They're the ones that God loved from before the foundation of the world and therefore drew unto Himself in time through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Further, if we read a little further in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7 and 8, Actually, verses 7 through 10. God reminds them here that for a brief moment He had deserted us, but with great compassion He said, I'll gather you in overflowing anger. For a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Hmm. What a precious promise this is. This glorious promise I found here in Isaiah chapter 54 became mine. It became a promise given to me personally by the Lord Himself. And the reason and the only reason that this promise became mine is because of what is found in chapter 53 of Isaiah. Turn there with me. Back one chapter, if you will. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Excuse me. Verse, verse 4 through verse 6 of Isaiah 53. We'll not read the whole thing, just a portion of this. Where there the prophet Isaiah records God's word, telling us, surely he has borne our griefs. Who's he talking about? Who bore our griefs? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus on the cross, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This promise in Isaiah 54 
that I would not ever be put to shame or be humiliated in the presence of God. I would never have that happen. It is only because of what Jesus Christ did for me, as recorded in chapter 53 of Isaiah, that God put on him my sin, and he died to pay the price for it. And that's why this promise can be real to me. And one other reason is found in chapter 55 of Isaiah. Look at verse 1, where the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I don't care how wealthy you may be, how much of this world possessions you have it's not enough it's not enough to purchase what you need but the shepherd the shepherd provides all that we need the Lord is my shepherd what does the psalmist say the Lord is my shepherd I have everything I need in him and without him I don't have anything I need nothing Isaiah 55. Let's look a little further. Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. There it is. Hear. The good shepherd said what? My sheep, they hear my voice. My sheep, they hear my voice. And they what? And they follow me. And they follow me. God's sheep, the Lord's sheep, the shepherd's sheep, they hear his voice and they follow him. And so verse 6 goes on to say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will pardon. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Whoever trusts in Christ and in him alone will not be put to shame. He will not be humiliated in that day when all men stand before the judge of all the earth. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, his first letter, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. Second chapter of 1 John, verse 28. John said, And now, little children, abide in him. By faith, live your life in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's only one place to be found that will keep us from being put to shame and humiliated in that day. Only one place, and that's in Christ, in the shepherd, the good shepherd. Is the shepherd of John chapter 10 your shepherd? 
is the one the psalmist talked about in the 23rd Psalm, your shepherd. The Lord, is he your shepherd? Will you one day stand before him and hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you? Or will you be welcomed into his eternal presence? Because yes, he did know you. And because he knew you, you knew him. And because you heard his voice and you followed him, you followed him. Because the good shepherd laid down his life for you. Oh, how I pray that if it is such that your experience was like mine, that vacation Bible school on that day when I was misled by a well-meaning preacher who in all reality was nothing but the blind leading the blind. If that has been your experience, be thankful if you've taken the test this morning and found that you failed the test and come up short, be thankful that God has shown you that. For there's still hope. There's still hope for you. If you turn to Christ, if you trust in the Lord Jesus with all your heart. For he said, I am the door. I am the door, and if any man enters in, he'll be saved. But he's the only door there is. He is the only door there is to salvation. Any other door other than that narrow way, that constricted way, that confined way, which is Christ and Christ alone, any other way than that is the broad way that leads to destruction and eternal death and separation from God. So be thankful. Even if you fail the test this morning, be thankful that there's still hope and that he still welcomes sinners to come to him without money and without price. So just seek him with all your heart. And Jeremiah the prophet says, if we seek him with all of our heart, he'll be found by us. He'll be found. Oh, be thankful. Be thankful that there is hope in Christ. Let's bow and pray. Can we, in closing?